This morning we are in one of the most important chapters in Scripture. We are in Romans 6. As I mentioned, the sermon this morning will be on the first 14 verses, and the sermon this evening will be on verses 15 to 23, and thus I'll have the great privilege of preaching through one of the most most important and vital chapters in all of the Bible in one Sunday. I hope you'll be back this evening. By way of review, justification is God's work of declaring sinners righteous because of Christ. Sanctification is God's work of setting believers in Jesus apart for his own possession and use. You might look at sanctification, God's work of setting you apart for his own possession and use, like the farm brothers who came in from haying on a hot summer day to the kitchen table of the farmhouse. Much to their pleasure, they saw their mother had baked a delicious, fresh cherry pie for lunchtime's dessert. There she had sliced it, but in her human error, she had sliced one slice considerably bigger than the rest. And so the one brother who was a man of foresight stuck his dirty old index finger in the biggest piece of the pie. (laughs) He marked it for his own possession and use. Sanctification, believer, is God's extraordinary work of grace to set you apart from the world, even apart from yourself. God's incredible work of setting you as a believer apart for his possession and for his use. Being in Christ, in Christ, is a huge part of God's justification of you. And being in Christ is also a huge part of God's sanctification of you. A key verse to understand this process of how crucial it is to be in Christ is Galatians 2.20. Hold your place in Romans 6, would you? And go over to Galatians Galatians 2, verse 20. It's a very uh, thought-provoking verse about being in Christ. Galatians 2, 20. This will not be on the screen. Galatians 2, 20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Wait a minute, Paul. You were physically alive when the Holy Spirit moved you to write Galatians 2.20, and yet you wrote, I have been crucified. How does that work? Because Paul, as well as you, believer, was placed into Christ at conversion by the Spirit of God, and whatever happened to Jesus happened to you because you're in Christ. Jesus was crucified. In Christ, you've been crucified. And the life that Paul then lived was by faith in the Son of God who loved Paul and gave himself for Paul. And so this concept of being in Christ is huge. When it comes to God declaring you innocent through Christ, that's justification. And being in Christ is equally huge in the work of God to set you apart for his own possession and use. In Christ is a huge thing. Now, in our passage this morning, Romans 6, 1 to 
14, in Christ, that phrase only appears in verse 11. But in this same passage, into Christ is mentioned in verse 3, and with him is mentioned in verses 4, 5, 6, and 8. Plus, with Christ in this passage appears in verse 8. So watch my hand. If this is Christ, and this is you, believer, when you transferred your trust to the finished work of Christ and were born again, the Spirit of God placed you into Christ. He also placed you into the family of believers called the incredible body of Christ. And whatever happened to Jesus now is your past. Jesus Christ was crucified. Watch. The old you was crucified. Jesus Christ was buried. The old you was buried. Jesus Christ was raised to newness of life. You've been raised to newness of life if you're a Christian. And the newness of life is Christ's life. Christ is your Lord, your Savior, and your life. Now we're going to read our passage. Romans 6, starting at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, so we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never again to die. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What a passage. At the front door of this passage, we need to point out three preliminary understandings. You will not understand this passage if you miss these three preliminary understandings. Ready? Three. Number one, sin is singular, not plural. And sin, singular, is the root of all sins, plural. Sin, singular, is the root of all sins, plural. The law of sin and death 
is another way of saying sin, singular, the root of sins, plural. Just flip over to Romans 7, 25, please. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with the flesh, the law of sin. So sin singular in Romans 6, 1 to 14, sin singular is the law of sin and death, the principle of sin and death. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so the first preliminary understanding to understand Romans 6, 1 to 14, is that it's sin, singular, and that is the root of all sins, plural. And another synonym for sin, singular, is the law of sin or the law of sin and death. The second preliminary you must understand is that the state of being dead is the state of being separated and unresponsive. Consistently, death in Scripture is separation. Physical death is a separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. Eternal death is the separation of the resurrected soul, spirit, and body forever in a literal place the Bible calls hell. In Scripture... Death is separation. So what we are saying that in this passage, the state of being dead is the condition of being separated and unresponsive. Third, the state of being alive is the state of being united and responsive. That makes sense. If in this passage, dead means to be separated and unresponsive, that in this passage, being alive is the state of being united and being responsive. To say that we have died to sin, singular, is to say that we are separated from the law of sin and death. To say that we have died to sin, singular, is to say that we no longer have to be slaves to the downward pull into sins, the downward pull of the law of sin and death. So look at verses 3 to 7 of Romans 6, please, with me again. With these understandings, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed. From sin. I've told you before that my grandfather and my father have been funeral directors in Toronto 
as a funeral director, my father has conducted and arranged the funerals of probably hundreds of alcoholics. And the curious thing is that if my dad were to put a bottle of rum on the casket of an alcoholic who was given to rum, the corpse would move not one inch toward the bottle. What he couldn't resist while alive, he can't respond to at all while dead. Friends, because we are co-crucified with Christ, we are dead. And we are separated from having to be pulled down into sinning. We ought to be unresponsive to the law of sin and death. And we will be until we stop seeing that we're unresponsive to the law of sin and death. Look at verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the first command of the book of Romans. You can read from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 10, and there's not one command in that part of Romans. Not one. This is the first command in the book. Must be important. Verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word consider here is pivotal. You have to know what it means. The word consider translates a commercial term in Greek. It was an accounting term to consider. To consider carried the ideas of counting, reckoning, tallying, computing. It was a commercial word. And the first command of Romans to you as a believer, to me as a believer, even so consider, count, tally, figure yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And again, so we don't miss it, it's the first command of the book. To what exactly are we to count ourselves as being dead to sin? detached from and unresponsive to the law of sin and death? And what else are we to reckon in verse 11 that we should count ourselves as being alive to God in Christ Jesus, connected to God in Christ Jesus, capable of response to God in Christ Jesus? That's what we're to reckon. If you were to write that verse out and memorize it and to, and to recite that verse to yourself, to your head, to your self-talk, Multiple times, every single day until you go to heaven, it would help you to be holy. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. But do you know why water baptism of a believer is biblically by immersion, by putting fully underwater briefly? Do you know why? Because the Greek verb baptizo means to place into doesn't mean to sprinkle. It means to place into. And because immersion in water best pictures co-crucifixion, co-burial, and co-resurrection with Christ. So when I baptize a believer, I say, buried with him through baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism by water is to be by immersion. Now, 
verses 12 and 13 explain this notion of stopping and starting. They present the notions of stopping and starting as a repeated process. Let's see that, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, because you're to consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, verse 11, therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, unrighteousness, but, pivotal change in the verse, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Incredible body Christ. Stopping in the presentation of our bodies to flesh and the law of sin and death is continuous. Similarly, the presentation of our bodies, redeemed bodies, to the Holy Spirit for righteousness is to be continuous. Moment to moment. Moment to moment, number one, we're to stop allowing the law of sin and death to control our body's appetites. The verse says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its lusts. That's stopping. Moment to moment, we are to stop presenting our bodies and their aspects to the law of sin to work like marionettes. Stop presenting your mind, your eyes, your feet, your heart, your mouth to the law of sin and death so it can work you like a marionette in acts of unrighteousness. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, the verse says. Maybe we could look at it this way. Our bodies are like tools in a toolbox. Our body parts, our eyes, our ears, our mouths, our minds, our hands, our feet, etc., are like hammers and pliers and saws and screwdrivers and levels. They're tools. They're neutral. They're amoral. In and of themselves, they are morally neutral. They are tools in a toolbox. Now, we can choose to offer our body's parts either to Satan or to God. We have the option every single day, in fact, every single moment of every single day, we have the choice to make who's going to use my tools. Who's going to use my eyes? Who's going to use my ears, my mouth? Who's going to use my mind? Who's going to use my hands? And who's going to use my feet? To whom am I going to present the tools in my toolbox? Am I going to present them in my flesh to the law of sin and death? Or am I going to present my tools in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory and praise of God? 12 and 13, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as, right, as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now verse 13b contends that we are spiritually alive. Remember what that means? To be spiritually alive is not to be separated, to be united with Christ 
To be spiritually alive means to be responsive to the word of God, means to be responsive to the Holy Spirit, means to be responsive to the family of God who call us on our sin and encourage us to things that will help us grow. And verse 13b contends that we are spiritually alive and responsive. That's the normal Christian life. For us to present our tools to God for his glory, our eyes, our ears, our mouths, our minds, our hands, our feet, the spirit of God, to use the tools for the work of God to the glory of God. And so the question that you don't need to ask is, do I have a toolbox? You do. You all have toolboxes. I have a toolbox. And also, the question you ought not to ask is, will someone use the tools that are found in my toolbox? The answer to that is, yeah. Your tools are going to be used either by the law of sin and death on your flesh or by the Holy Spirit. The tools in your toolbox will be used. And you have the choice of who will use them. Now we're moving in these verses to the practical issues of sanctification. Remember, sanctification is God's work of setting you as a Christian apart for God's possession and use. There are three aspects to sanctification. There is a sense in which it is immediate and complete at conversion. When you were saved, the Spirit of God placed you into Christ, whether you knew it or not, and you'll never get more into Christ than that moment positional sanctification. But then there's something called practical sanctification or experiential sanctification. Even though positionally we're in Christ, therefore God can justify us, we live our lives. And we have times of obedience to the Holy Spirit and times of rebellion to the Holy Spirit. Times of being controlled by the Spirit of God and other times of being controlled by our flesh. That's experiential, up and down, walk with God. This chapter is talking about how to help with the ongoing experiential sense of experiential sense of your sanctification. So there's positional sanctification that was historically when you trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. There's practical ongoing sanctification, which is on the on the fly in real time in each of our lives. And then there's ultimate sanctification, and that's future. That's a when we see Christ face to face thing. 1 John 3 2 says, We shall be made to be like him, Jesus, when we see him. I'm looking forward to that. I'd like to ditch my flesh. I'd like to ditch the law of sin and death. I'd love to ditch my moral failures before my Savior. I'd like to ditch my capitulation and caving into negative peer pressure. I'd like to ditch all of that, and one day I will. When I see Jesus face-to-face, either through the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, or through physical death, when I see Jesus face-to-face, my flesh problem, my law of sin and death problem will be gone because I'll be made to be like Jesus. I'm looking forward to that. We go on. This whole battle of experiential sanctification as to who we're going to present the tools of our bodies to for for use 
is the hub and the crux of chapter 7. Paul makes some astounding admissions about the failures in his Christian life. The great apostle Paul that the Spirit of God used to write 60% of the New Testament. That Apostle Paul, in chapter 7, calls himself a wretch. Says, that which I wish to do, I don't do, and that which I wish not to do, I do. Some Christians have been unnecessarily uncomfortable with that. And they say, you see, that chapter 7, that was before the road to Damascus conversion. They're not comfortable with the Apostle Paul admitting his struggle with sin as a Christian. But that makes no sense in the logical flow and the logical argument of the book of Romans. Because chapter 5 is about justification. Chapter 6 that we're in this morning is about sanctification. Chapter 7 is about more of sanctification, the struggles within it. And chapter 8 is about glorification. Chapter 7 was after Paul's conversion because you are saved, he was saved, and we still have our flesh. We could ask the Lord, why'd you leave me with my flesh? You know, you could have taken my flesh away, Lord. Why'd you leave me with that traitor inside of me? So you'll trust me more? So you'll dig into my word more? So you'll be in tune with me and confess your sin more? so that I'll be glorified when I glorify you and ditch your flesh. If you want to read about Paul's struggle, and I hope you will, you could read the whole chapter 7, but particularly chapter 7, verses 15 to 24. I'll let you to read that. One way that you might look at this whole deal is that our body, soul, and spirit is our earth suit. You know how spacemen need a space suit to walk in space? We need an earth suit to walk on earth. Our body allows us to interact with our environment through our senses. Our soul allows us to interact with each other through our personalities. And the spirit of the person allows us to interact with God. Before Christ, Ephesians 2, 1 says, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That means the spirit part of us was dead as a doorpost, unresponsive to God because of sin. All that left us was our soul, personality, and our body. So the people you know who aren't yet believers, the poor folks, they're only functioning with a soul and a body. They have a dead spirit. In Scripture, the combination of the soul and the body is called flesh. And in this analogy of an earth suit, that's the leak in our earth suits, flesh. We have an earth suit, body, soul, and spirit. We're able to walk on earth. But even after we're saved and our spirit is made alive in regeneration, we have a leak in our earth suits, it's flesh. And so the law of sin and death as a believer is wanting to impose its will on us, and it comes toward us like Velcro, and we have a part still in us as redeemed people of Velcro. And if we let it get too close, then the law of sin and death will Velcro onto us and tell us what to do. That's what it used to do before we were saved. The flesh before you were saved said jump, and all you could say was how high. 
Now, if you do get re-engaged to the law of sin and death through not minding your flesh, then you can say to that, I'm no longer going to be a slave of unrighteousness. Jesus Christ has delivered me from that. He's given me co-crucifixion with him, co-burial with him, and co-resurrection with him. He's imparted to me the gift of the Holy Spirit, the precious gift of the Holy Spirit. Buzz off. Can you say that in the Bahamas? After I blurted it out, I thought, maybe I'm not allowed to say that. If I offended anybody, I'm sorry. Happened to Paul. Don't be arrogant to say it couldn't happen to you. It happened to Paul. It can happen to me. Let me illustrate being in Christ. Got this three by five recipe card. I've got this Bible. Let the Bible be Jesus. And at the point of your conversion, when you trusted him alone to be your savior from sin, the spirit of God baptized you into Christ. He placed you into Christ. You're there for good. You can't even take yourself out of Christ if you're genuinely saved. You're in Christ. Now, if I gave this Bible to one of you who's taking the ferry to one of the family islands, and you took this, my Bible would get to Abaco, but guess what? So would the three-by-five card. Whatever happens to the Bible happens to the three-by-five card that's in it. You're in Christ. Co-crucified, co-buried, and co-resurrected. You don't have to be the slave to the law and sin and death. You can present your tools as instruments of righteousness. Maybe this is just sure ringing true to you. Truth be known, this is ringing true to every Christian in the sound of my voice. But maybe this is really ringing true to you. Maybe you've been living out of your flesh as a Christian for not a week, not a month, not a year, but years. Not knowing the victorious Christian life. O believer, know that God has so much better for you. Know, consider, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That should be on, burned on your mind and heart constantly. Romans 6, 1 to 14 is teaching us that being in Christ is the huge key to understanding experiential sanctification. Now let me, and moving toward the end of this sermon, let me remind you of some key terms that we've seen in verses 1 to 14. You ready? Crucified to sin, that is we no longer have to be sin slave. Buried, our old life has been put away. Don't dig it out of the grave. Resurrected to life, we now can respond to the Holy Spirit and thereby live a brand new life. 
that Jesus said in John 10.10, I've come that you would have life and have it more abundantly. Sin singular. That's the law of sin or the law of sin and death. It's the Velcro pull on you into sins. It's the leak in your earth suit. The word consider, it's the way we give the Holy Spirit sway and control in our lives. It's the way we keep the Velcro of our flesh apart from the Velcro of the law of sin. Consider, it's the continuous command of considering ourselves to be unresponsive to the law of sin, but totally responsive to the Holy Spirit. The term also still in the 14 verses, the members of your body. We said the members of your body are the tools we have in our toolboxes, our eyes, our ears, our mouths, our minds, our hands, and our feet. Capital One's 800 number doesn't work in the Bahamas, by the way. I thought you should know that. But I raised Capital One credit cards because they asked, what's in your wallet? Romans 6.14 asks, who's got your toolbox? Who's got your toolbox? Who's got your toolbox? There is one more verse I want us to see. It's the last verse of our paragraph. It's verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Sin, also known as the law of sin and death, is the subject of verse 14. Sin, singular, will either be your master or it won't. This is a summary verse. 14 is a summary verse of verses 1 to 13. It's tying a ribbon on the passage, verse 14 is. Sin, singular, also known as the law of sin and death, is the subject of this verse. Sin, singular, will either be your master or it won't. And what makes the difference? Living under law or living under grace. That's makes the difference. How would living under law make you sin, make sin your master? How would living under law make sin singular your master? By constantly pointing out your sins, that's the job of the law, without providing any remedy for your sins. The law of God is wonderful if you understand what it was given for. The law of God was never designed to provide righteousness because no one can keep the law of God all of that 100% of the time. The law of God's very important purpose is to take us by the hand, it says in Galatians, like a pedagogue, like a tutor, to take us by the hand, not to the schoolhouse, but to the cross, to take us by the hand that we need Jesus, that we can't keep the law. That's the law's function. The law is a mirror. It can only point out that our hair's messy. The law as the mirror is not a hairbrush. It can't fix your messy hair. The law in another metaphor is a MRI. It can tell the surgeon what's the problem inside of you, but the law 
cannot be the scalpel in the surgeon's hand. And so if we put ourselves under law, we are going to know frustration and sins eventually. Law can only point out our sin and our need for a Savior. Law can't cover our sin, pay for our sin, provide us with a Savior. But the grace of God, that's something different. The grace of God gives us Jesus to pay for our sins, plural. And the grace of God gives us the Holy Spirit to overcome the power of sin, singular, After we are saved, the law still reveals sins, plural, and the law of sin and death still works all the while to pull us down into sinning. Both are happening. It's a civil war between inside each Christian. Grace, and only grace, gives us a remedy beyond the law. And gives us relief from the downward pull of the law and sin and death. Grace does. Grace is what frees us up from our earth suit's leak, always dominating the flesh. Grace wins, and we live out the win as we reckon aright and as we walk controlled by the Holy Spirit. Look at it this way. Every day, multiple airplanes land at the Nassau airport, and multiple airplanes take off. I want you to picture a plane on the tarmac on the Nassau airport readying to take off. As that plane sits on the tarmac, the law of gravity is pulling the mass of that plane toward the center of the earth. But when the pilot revs the turbine engines, and gives it the thrust necessary and the speed necessary and the air flap position and the wings necessary, then the law of aerodynamics overrules the law of gravity. When that plane flies from Nassau to Boston, the law of gravity is still in play. And if the plane stalled out, God forbid, it would be pulled like a stone because the law of gravity is still operative on that airplane. But as long as the engines are right, the air flaps are right, the speed is right, then the law of aerodynamics overturns the operative law of gravity. And they fly. And if you're sitting in seat 7B, you're inside the aircraft, and whatever the aircraft does, you do. If you're in 7B and the aircraft flies, you fly. If you're in Jesus Christ and you are believers, every one of you are in Jesus Christ. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Give us minds to understand, minds to believe, and toolboxes to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.